0: All right. Well, uh, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, welcome back, family. Uh, it's good to see you. Guests, it's good to see you here this morning. I've had a chance to meet some of you this morning, but my name's Cale. I'm the teaching pastor here at the Delaware campus. And uh, I want to start off by just giving us an update. So gosh, six to eight weeks ago, probably, I asked uh, our uh, campus here just to be praying for our Marion campus. So just to give you a little background if you are new, uh, several months ago, a number of months ago, uh, we sent out uh, about 75 folks, 75 to 100 folks to uh, plant uh, or launch a campus of life in Marion following what we believe to be God's activity there. And things are going well. Uh, one of the biggest frustrations that we've had is we thought we were going to be moving into a facility in like, March or April. And as the months went by, it was like, man, this is just not moving. The uh, barber who was there at the facility hadn't been able to move into his uh, permanent uh, facility yet. We couldn't move into that facility till he moved into his new facility. And so uh, six or eight weeks ago, I asked uh, us to just pray and really to pray around a couple of things. Yes, we want to see them move and us be able to move in. But we also prayed that Uh, we would see some momentum, see God move in ways that were not related to the building because we were reminded that uh, as Paul and I were talking about this, Paul is our uh, teaching pastor there, that, hey, we We don't trust in buildings, right? We trust in the name of the Lord, our God. It's not a building that disciples people. So I just wanted to share with you as we've prayed over the last, I asked Paul a little while ago, I said, man, you know, how have things been going? He and I talk almost every week. And uh, he said, Cale, honestly, we've had new folks come in our temporary location. New folks join us on a Sunday morning, six weeks in a row. And uh, he said, it feels like we have a real sense of momentum. And uh, this past week, the barber moved, right? And, And get this, right? So absolutely, praise God. But this is so cool. Uh, the barber actually, Paul has been working on this relationship there between the barbershop and, and us. And the barber reached out to us to LifePoint and said, will you guys help us move? And so uh, several of our folks came and helped the barbershop move into their new location. And they were so grateful. He said, hey, we want to serve dinner to your entire church, right, uh, to the Marion campus. And so Paul is just thrilled at the relationship that seems to be uh, developing there. And so just wanted to say thank you for praying but also praise God because God does, uh, he's doing what he does, right? And I think sometimes, uh, I'm, I'm convinced, sometimes God slows the process down uh, to get his people to depend on him in prayer, right? To recognize that we're not independent of him, but we are dependent upon his activity. We can't do this on our own. It is uh, he who does the work. We, uh, we've been in a series now, we've been calling labels uh, for more than 10 weeks and we're studying our way through the gospel of Luke and the big idea of this series is that uh, the gospel calls us to a life above labels. Uh, one of the things that is the, one of the more consistent themes of Luke is, is uh, Jesus associating uh, with the poor, with the destitute with the tax collectors, with the prostitutes, with the people who've been labeled sinners by the culture around them, these people who have been negatively labeled by oftentimes the religious uh, folks around them who have labeled them such, and Jesus associating with those people and saying, hey, that doesn't define who you are, the labels that culture has put on you, or that maybe you've even put on yourself, that doesn't, that need not define you. Uh, You can be defined by your relationship with me. So he calls them, come, follow me. And so we've said the gospel calls us to a life above the labels. Now, what's interesting is that uh, this week and next week, we're actually going to be looking at uh, Jesus's interactions, not with the poor, but with the rich. And what's I think powerful is that while Jesus absolutely uh, associates with the lowly, and there is a focus in the gospel of Luke on the poor, on those who do not have, the have-nots, it's not that Jesus is like, I really don't like rich people. In fact, he's calling them to follow him as well. It's just that the rich have uh, maybe some unique difficulties, as we've been talking about last week, as we'll talk about this week, and as we'll talk about again uh, next week, difficulties in following Jesus because of the sneaky way that the love of money can find its way into our hearts. And so uh, we're going to be in Luke 18 this morning, starting in verse 18. And uh, many of us will be familiar, some of us maybe not, and that's okay. The passages are going to be here on the screens for you. But we're going to be looking at the story here of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and asks him this, verse 18, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, just for some context here, he's asking how to get into heaven. And that's been sort of the theme of chapter 18, is this idea of how does one enter into the kingdom of God? Jesus is telling everybody the kingdom of God is here salvation is here. Well, how do you get that? How are you saved? How are you forgiven of your sin? How do you get into the kingdom? And Jesus has been talking about in chapter 18. He talked about, he told a story of two men who prayed, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And, And who of those went home justified before God? The one who was humble before the Lord. That's the one who received salvation. He talks to people about needing to accept the kingdom of God and have faith like a child a total dependence upon the Lord. He says, you can't enter the kingdom unless you receive it like a child. So that's been sort of the theme of of Luke 18 is, well, how does one enter into the kingdom of God? So this ruler comes, and that's another thing to note. Um, It doesn't say he's rich or young. That's something we see in Matthew and in Mark. Matthew and Mark tell the same story, and they tell us that he's young and he's rich, and Luke tells us he's a ruler. In other words, he's got everything going for him from a worldly perspective, He is rich, he's young, he's got authority, he's in a position of importance, and as we're going to see in this passage, he's also a very moral person. And so it seems like he is candidate, I mean, candidate number one for getting into heaven. From an earth, right? From the way their culture would have looked at it, it's like, I mean, he's rich, young, powerful, and he's not arrogant. Wow! Right? He's a good person, follows the rules, surely… He's going to get into heaven. Jesus is going to look at him and say, you're already in, right? This is what happens. Verse 19, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. It's a bit of a puzzling phrase and various explanations have been offered for why he says that. I think at the very least, Jesus is challenging his notion of goodness, right? Do you call me good just because I am a teacher, because I'm a religious figure, or do you really think that I'm good, perfect? Because he says only the Father, only God is perfect, right? Only God alone. The Son is perfect. Let me say that. The Son is perfect, Holy Spirit. He says only God is perfect, which I think is a bit of irony as well, because I think in some ways he's looking at the young man and saying, Do you really re- recognize who you're talking to? Right? The Son of God, God in the flesh. Well, verse 20, Jesus goes on, You know the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And the young man said, all these I have kept from my youth. From the time that I was a boy, I did all of these things. Now, this is a fascinating answer. If you remember, this is almost identical to the way that Jesus answers the lawyer, the teacher of the law, back in Luke 10 when he comes to Jesus and says, how am I, how how do you get into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments, what are they, right? And he walks him through the commandments. Now here, he focuses on the latter half of the 10 commandments, the ones about loving your neighbor as yourself. And I think there's a reason for that because Jesus is about to show him and really expose that he has broken the very first commandment, right? As far as loving God and having no other God's before him. But it's interesting that Jesus answers this way. He's leading this man to a place of discovery, to understanding what really is the problem. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, as the young man looks back at him and says, I've kept them all. I've followed the rules. He said to him, and I imagine Jesus just sort of locking eyes with this young man at this point in time, peering into his soul. And he looks at him and says, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have. Go sell everything and distribute to the poor. Go sell everything you have and give it away to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. Which is really the offer in a sense to be the 13th disciple. And Jesus has not offered that to everyone. Note that, right? That a lot of times people will get healed or delivered and they want to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, no, I want you to stay right where you are. Go tell people what God has done for you. This young man gets the invitation. Come follow me. Right? I'm on the way to Jerusalem right now. Come follow me. But he tells him, if you'll just go home right now, put a for sale sign in the yard, put the car up right on whatever, you know, Facebook marketplace, get it all out there, right? Just sell it all. Treasure in heaven, which is equals salvation. He's telling him, you want to enter the kingdom of God? Just go home, sell it, give it away. Now, let's look on in verse 23, 24, and 25. But when he heard these things, right? I want you to think for a moment what you would have done, because that's key. Put yourself in this man's shoes and say, what would my response to that be? It says, when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Very sad. And the word, I don't know that this is a great, the, the translation of this, the word, as far as I understand it, means so sad, even to the point of, of death. Like excruciating, exceedingly sorrowful is the literal meaning. Exceedingly sorrowful. Like he hears that and it just, stomach drops, right? The heart drops. I mean, it's like, oh no. For he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. There have been some attempts to explain this away. Uh, you may have heard some of these things like, oh, there's this like gate in Jerusalem that's called the eye of a needle and a camel with difficulty could get down on its knees and enter through the gate. And it was just really hard. That's not what Jesus is saying. There's no reference in antiquity to such a gate existing, right? It doesn't come until the 11th century. Uh, so that if you've ever heard that, um, sorry. If you've like told other people like, this is what it means. I'm sorry, you're wrong, right? And so... It doesn't mean that. Jesus is, means exactly what he's saying. He's using hyperbole. He's using, like, the camel was the largest animal in their culture, and an eye of a needle was the smallest opening. And, and so the people hear it, and they're like, camel, needle, right? Like, hey, Jesus, that doesn't work. And that's what they say. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? that would mean no one can be saved. And Jesus is driving toward that. Right, salvation is not something that someone can earn by their own works, the rich or otherwise. And the rich, as we've talked about, right, because of wealth and because of its, uh, the temptation to love it makes it even harder. But he's saying, man, the bottom line is salvation is something God does by grace, through faith. But look at verse 27, they say, well, then who can be saved? If this guy can't get in, none of us are getting in. And he says basically, right, but what is impossible with man is possible with God. By your own works, no way. By your own effort and following the rules, no way. But by the grace of God, by the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection, by the Holy Spirit changing you from the inside out, what's impossible with man is possible with God. Now, we're going to come back at the end to see what Peter says. Peter kind of raises his hand and has a question. I love Peter, right? He's just like, I have a question. And, and uh, Jesus is so gracious with him. But uh, let's process what just happened. Because I can imagine some of us hear what I just said about, no, it's not by our works, but by the grace of God through faith. It's not by our effort that we gain the kingdom. It's a gift from the Lord. But you look at the passage, you're like, Kale, isn't that kind of what just happened? You know, Jesus is like, go do this and then you can get into the kingdom. Like, it almost seems like, you know, is Luke saying, or is Jesus saying here, like, go do a good work. You go sell all you have and give to the poor, and then you'll earn your way into the kingdom. No, that's not what Luke is saying. It's not what Jesus is saying. We have to remember, Luke, who wrote this and who records Jesus saying this, is the same guy who wrote the book of Acts, where we get some of the most uh, purely just gospel responses, Peter and Paul preaching and people going, what do we do? I mean, what do we do in response to the news that Jesus died for our sins and rose again, that we might be saved? And what do they say? They're like, repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. Luke's the one who writes that. So clearly Luke, in his theology, he's like, no, no, no. The way to be saved is by grace through faith. So what is he saying here? What's happening here? Why does Jesus tell the young man he's got to go get rid of everything? Especially when he doesn't say that to other people. We mentioned this last week, right? That the Gospels record that some of the ladies who followed Jesus were ladies who had a lot of wealth. And it says they provided for Jesus and his ministry out of their means. Well, Jesus didn't tell them, hey, before you follow me, go sell everything. I referenced 1 Timothy chapter 6 last week where the Apostle Paul, when he's mentoring Timothy, uh, who was a pastor, he tells him what to tell people in his congregation who are really wealthy. And this is what he says. Paul telling Timothy, he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth. Don't build your life on it. It's sinking sand. Build your life on Christ, the solid rock. He says, don't put your hope on wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment not wrong to enjoy stuff. It's not wrong to buy stuff or have stuff. But he's like, but do not put your hope on it. Be incredibly, he goes on to say, be incredibly generous toward the Lord, toward others. Give freely. So what gives? Like, why is that the advice here? Why does this young man come and Jesus doesn't say, hey, you know what? What's important is you just don't build your life on it. Make sure you give some of it away. I think we find the clue or the answer really of why does Jesus look at this young man and tell him he has to go sell everything he has. The answer is in his reaction, in his response to that charge, to that that calling of, hey, you come follow me. The fact that he gets so sad, so distraught, and Mark and Matthew tells, he he leaves, he walks away, tells us what's going on. So just think about this for a moment. Jesus looks at this young man. He's not asking him to lose in the end. He tells him, you're going to gain. You came here asking me, how do you inherit eternal life? You want to live forever in the kingdom. And Jesus looks at him and says, okay, you want to live forever? Have eternal life, joy forever, for all eternity. All you have to do is go home and put the for sale sign in the yard. Get rid of all your earthly possessions. Give it away and it's yours. You don't lose, you gain. Come follow me. Be the 13th disciple. Eternal life. It's yours. Eternal riches. The real treasure that lasts is yours. Just get rid of the treasure that fades anyway. And in one of the saddest moments in the Bible, this young man hears that offer from Jesus and says, I can't. He walks away because his wealth has such a hold on his heart. So why is it that Jesus tells him he has to get rid of everything? The answer is, I think Jesus knows that he can't. That Jesus, it's it's as if Jesus in that moment looked at him looked in his eyes and peered right into his soul and saw, hey, this isn't really about money. It's about the love of money, the hold that it has on your heart. And it's really, if you dig beneath that, it's really about idolatry. Because you notice when Jesus said, right, what are the commandments? He walks him through the loving your neighbor and the, the young man is so confident. Like, I've done them all. I've followed all the law, Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, you haven't. You violated the very first one. What is the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. God looked at the people of Israel and said, the the whole relationship starts with this. I am your God. Love you. will take care of you. No other gods before me. Here's how I might illustrate this. I've been thinking about this, right? Like this young man's God is money, right? Say it that way. This young man's God is money. Jesus knows that as he looks in his heart and says, you have to give that God up. If you're going to be my, if I'm going to be your God, you can't have another God. So you got to go get rid of it. It's as if there's a, let me put it this way, there's a throne in his heart. And I believe that's true for all. There is a throne in every person's heart. Your heart, my heart, there's a throne in your life and in your heart. You say, why would you say it that way, Cale? Well, let me look back at Luke 16. We talked about this last week as well. Jesus teaching in Luke 16, verse 13. It says, no one can serve two masters. That's kingship language, right? You can't have two kings. One's going to rule your life. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. One of those is going to sit on the throne of your life. And you go through the Bible, right? It's like Genesis 1. God creates mankind to do what? To reflect His image, to worship Him. We were created to worship. You go through the Scriptures and you see the people of God, right? He's like, I'm your king. And they're like, no, we want another king. People are created to worship, Jesus is telling people the kingdom of God is at hand, which means there's a, there's a king <laughs> and we're called to worship that king. There's a throne in every single person's heart and the reality is someone or something occupies that throne in your life and in mine. There's a throne in your heart and someone or something is sitting on it today. And I just, let's just be real clear. It doesn't matter whether you're here and you call yourself a Christian, agnostic, atheist, secular, religious, spiritual, but not religious, doesn't matter. It it doesn't matter what it is you believe, this is true of you. If If I sat down with you for a few minutes and we asked some diagnostic questions, we could probably discern what that is, who it is or what it is that's sitting on the throne of your life. And Jesus is looking at this young man and saying, look, if you're going to be my follower, it's got to be me. It's got to be Jesus sitting on the throne of your life. And, and let me just say, I really think the scriptures uniformly teach throne in your heart, thrown in my heart, something or someone is occupying it, and your life is only going to be right when Jesus is the one sitting on that throne. That everything else, right? If there's something else or someone else sitting there, everything goes astray. So Jesus is looking. That's why he tells him, you got to go give it up. Why, Jesus? Because someone's sitting in my seat. (laughs) It's money for you. Money's got to get out of my seat so I can sit down. And when I do, young man, young man, if you will just let it go. Take money off the throne. Let me sit on the throne. You're going to find when you submit to my lordship and my kingship, your life, you're not going to lose. You're going to gain. It may not be easy, but your life will be right. You will inherit the eternal treasure. Come follow me. Find your joy. Find your ultimate happiness in me and in me alone when I sit on the throne. But I have to be the one. It can't be anything or anyone else. And the young man hears it, and he just can't give it up. I think he's sad because he knows exactly what Jesus is saying. It's not like he walks away going, I'm confused. (laughs) He knows, like, two things were offered here. You can follow me, or you can follow this. And faced with that decision, I have to give this up if I want to follow Christ wholeheartedly. Like it, the anxiety, the stress, like I don't know if he starts sweating, but like excruciatingly sad because he realizes what the cost of discipleship is. I'm going to have to give this up. And he's not willing, he's not able to take it off the throne because it has such a hold on his life. Now, money is perhaps, the love of money is perhaps one of, if not the most common one, Jesus said, the love of money is at the root of all evil. You dig your way down, you may find, man, it's money that sits on the throne. We talked about that last week, right? Asking yourself the questions of what dominates your thinking. Are you always thinking about money? Are you always thinking about what more you could have or how you don't have enough? But that's not the only one. You go through the scriptures, you'll see others. You look in your heart, you'll see others. Maybe sex maybe romance, just the idea of romance or having a relationship, that's what sits on the throne for you. Maybe your career or the value that it brings you, right? This is who I am, my identity. And maybe body image. We live in a culture where that's a very prevalent one, right? How I look and how you look and what the, the value that that brings to us as other people, I just wanna be noticed by other people it may maybe something else or someone else sitting on the throne, if there's something, here's how you know, like, how do I know? Well, one, I think the Holy Spirit does the work of showing you like, oh my goodness, it's that. And sometimes it happens through questions like this. If there's something in your life that you're going, man, could I ever give that up? Jesus would never ask me to give that up. I need that. I mean, to be happy, I need This I need this job. I remember probably 10, 11 years ago for me in my walk with Jesus, there came a time where I realized like I was petrified to pray about certain things in my life and to hand them over to the Lord because I thought I'm sure he's going to ask me to give it up. And I was so scared, which said two things, right? At least two things. One, a wrong view of God. I didn't believe that my greatest joy was found in him, that he was actually for me. I believed that God was the big guy in the sky who takes away fun things. And two, it showed the idolatry of my heart. Lord, I need this relationship if I'm going to be happy. Lord, I need this job or these accolades or this. I need that. Yeah, 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 I know you're my all in all. Jesus, my all in all, right? But that's not, that's not what I actually think. I need this. So if you're in the place where you're going, you know, hey, like I loved you, but he would never ask me. And you're nervous. Maybe you pray that way. You're like, I don't even pray about that. I don't pray about finances or giving my kids over to the Lord or the idea of a relationship over to the Lord or a future spouse over to the Lord. I don't pray about a career change because I, I don't pray about moving it like, Lord, do you want us to move ever? I could never put the for sale sign in the air. That's my home and that's everything I need. Jesus would never ask me to give that up. That's an idolatry problem. If someone else or something else is sitting on that throne competing with Jesus, Jesus doesn't sit on that throne with somebody else or something. It's not a two-seater, right? It's a one-seater. And Jesus says, it'll be me or it'll be something else. And ultimately you're like, well, how does that relate to faith? That's what faith is. Faith is saying, Lord, I'm going to turn my eyes upon you and everything else grows strangely dim. I'm turning away from these things, turning away from my sin, placing my trust in you that your finished work at the cross. It's enough for me. You paid for my sin. I believe that my new life is found because you were raised from the grave and my happiness and my joy, both now and forever are in you. You're for me, my greatest joy in you. Lord, I don't want anything else to dominate my life. I was uh, listening, speaking of idolatry, right? And and particularly around kids, right? This is one of those that challenges those of us who are parents where we're like, my kids are mine, right? I was listening to a pastor this week, uh, shepherding just his congregation and something he said struck me so much. He said, man, the number of times that we've had, their church does a lot of sending Right, A Lot of sending people out into the global mission field. And we, we do that here and we pray for the day where that's just increasing. And he said, the number of times I have parents who are like all about discipleship, right up until the point where their kid gets called into the global mission field. And then they like, hit the brakes, whoa, 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 right? Like, I didn't mean that. <laughs> I didn't mean follow Jesus till there. And he's like, it, it grieves me to see how, right? Like, God, you can have everything, not him. <laughs> Lord, take it on. Not her. I didn't mean you could pick us up and move us. Nothing else. No one else on the throne. Now, let's finish the passage and look at what Peter says here and Jesus's response to it. So Peter said, in response to this idea, he says, see, we have left our homes and followed you. I love Peter. Peter's like, I have a question, right? And uh, he's like, We've left everything to follow you, Jesus. And Jesus could be like, shut up, Peter. This is not about you right now, right? Like, this is about this, you know, just, and and Peter's like, what about us? We we left everything to follow. I mean, we left our careers and our families behind and we're, I left the boat, right? I mean, out to follow you. And I love, look at what Jesus says to him. Truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or wife, or brothers, or parents, or children, or their life behind, right? Who will not receive for the sake of the kingdom of God, not just because, but be in the pursuit of Christ saying, Lord, I'm leaving it all else behind. Who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. What's the point? When you give up everything and gain Jesus, you win. When you give up everything and gain Jesus, you win. A number of years ago, my, so we're coming up as a family one year, my grandfather passing away, right? Grandfather was a pivotal part of our family and uh, passed away almost a year ago. And my grandma still living and, and um, they were married, I think 61 years. And 35 years ago, I've shared some of this before, right? They just super rocky time in their marriage, nearly split apart. My grandma gave her life to Christ. And she went to my grandpa and told him, I love you, but you have to be second." He has to be first. You and everything else have to come second. That was, he did not like that. He wasn't a believer. He was not a follower of Jesus and he didn't understand. But if you were to ask her 35 years later, was that worth it to give up everything, to follow Jesus, to put everything else second, put Jesus on the throne of your life? I think she'd tell you it's the best decision she's ever made my grandfather, it doesn't always work out this way, but my grandfather became a believer in Christ, right? Such that in his 84th year on oxygen, right? In a church service, walked over. And this is so like, I'd never seen my grandfather do this. She'd never seen him do it. Walked up to a young man in church and just said, I just feel led to pray for you. So here's my 84 year old grandfather on oxygen, leaning over praying for this young man to see his faith grow in the last years. Best decision she's made, best decision he's made, right? When you say, Lord, everything else I give to you, here's it all, you're my all in all. I believe you, Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. For sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. When we come to that point of full surrender and we see Jesus take the throne, it's yours anyway. You don't lose, you gain, you win. And it may not be easy, In fact, it's very hard. Idols have a sneaky way of finding their way into our hearts. And for some of us, it's like a first-time thing. You've got something on that throne and you've never given your life over to Jesus. My prayer for you is today's the day. For some of us, it's like, man, I've made that commitment to follow Christ. But you find that those idols are trying to claw their way back in. And daily repentance, daily confession looks like, Lord, I don't want anything else to compete with you. Let me close with this. I mentioned in Mark, we're gonna actually take some time, some extended time just to pray here before we baptize someone, but I'll close with this. Mark tells us that Jesus looked at this young man and he loved him. Which is a little interesting because you I mean, like well, doesn't Jesus love everyone, right? Yes, but it's just interesting that Mark takes a moment to tell us specifically that as Jesus looks at this young man, he has this compassion for him this love for He's not being mean to him. He's not trying to steal his joy. He's trying to free him. You're like, why does Jesus look at him and just so love him? And I think more than one uh, pastor or commentator has pointed out that in some ways, Jesus is like the ultimate rich young ruler. He's looking at a young man who has everything and he's telling him, I want you to give it up for something greater. Jesus had everything. (laughs) Jesus is the Son of God who for all eternity experienced joyful fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is rich. He owns everything. Everything was made for him and through him and by him. And yet Jesus left everything, stepped out of heaven, took on flesh. The king of the universe became a helpless baby. And even now, as Jesus looks at this young man, you know where Jesus is headed? He's on his way to Jerusalem, to the cross, where he's gonna give his very life for the sins of this young man and you and me. And so Jesus isn't asking him to do anything that he's not already done. (laughs) Jesus isn't asking you to give up anything that he's already not given up. He has given up everything, came after you in love. The scriptures tell us God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus gave it all. And he's telling this young man, you give it all and you're gonna find in me something so much greater. Here's been my hope and my prayer for us that none of us would leave today just extremely sad because we couldn't give up whatever it was that was sitting on the throne of our hearts. That none of us would leave here today knowing, for some of us right now, you know, I know what it is. I know who it is. And Jesus is saying, it has to go. For you to be my follower, it has to go. And I promise you, it's gonna be okay. It's gonna be more than okay. You're gonna find real and true and lasting joy in him and him alone. And my prayer has been, oh Lord, don't let any of us leave today just being sad, knowing I can't give it up. Because that's what happens in this this young man's life is faced with that kind of love. A love that would give his life for him. In the face of love incarnate and love divine, this young man looks at Jesus and this offer and says, thanks, but no thanks. I think I'll keep the money. That's why I say I think it's one of the most tragic and sad moments in the scriptures. And I hope for none of us that we'll leave saying, Lord, thanks. Thanks for your son. Thanks for the cross, for your love for me, but no thanks. Thanks. Let's pray together. As I said, we're going to take just some extended time in prayer here. And I'm going to kind of lead us through this time. But my goal is really that you would pray and reflect and allow the Lord to speak to you. And I want to start off just by saying, hey, will you take some time just to confess to the Lord? If you sense and see this morning, there is something or someone competing with Jesus for the kingship of your life. Will you hand that over to him this morning? Confess that to God and turn it over to him. He's a good father. You will not lose in the end. Don't be the one who tries to cling to this life but loses it, lose it for the sake of the gospel and find it in Christ. So take some time right now just to pray, ask the Lord, Lord, is there any idol clawing its way back in or something that I've never given to you? And this morning at a heart level, will you give that over to Jesus? Take some time just to pray now. As you continue to pray, I want to read and have you just consider this. Psalm 1611, the psalmist says, "'You make known to me the path of life, you, God, "'and in your presence there is fullness of joy. "'The fullness of joy at your right hand "'are pleasures forevermore.'" My sense is that some of us need to confess to the Lord this morning that we have not believed that. That what we've believed is, God, if I were to give you these things, my life will be less than. I will not be as happy. I need this, God, to be happy. And the Father is here telling us the fullness of joy is found in my presence. At my right hand are pleasures forevermore. Will you confess in this morning, God, I have not believed that. Help me to believe that. Lord, help my unbelief. The world tells me, the enemy tells me, my own heart tells me, God, that I need X, Y, or Z if I'm gonna be happy. And yet here the Father tells us what you need is me. I'll take care of you. You can find rest in me, joy in me, pleasure in me, and I will take care of you, your life. Your eternity. Will you just respond to the Lord? Confess to Him if that's where you are. Lord, I've not believed that. I've struggled to believe that. And for some of us, we are believers. We've made that commitment to Christ, but this is a daily walk. And we need to recommit to the Lord today, confess sin ask God to cleanse us from the inside out. But for some of us, this is maybe the first time and there has been someone or something else sitting on the throne of your life. And maybe this morning you're ready to say, I want to take that off, that person, that thing off. Jesus, I want you to take your rightful place in my life. I wanna give you an opportunity. If that's you this morning, I wanna give you an opportunity to pray now, to say, Heavenly Father, I confess my sin to you. I cannot fix myself. And I believe it is only by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross that I am forgiven. Only because he was raised from the grave on the third day that I can have new life. And Jesus, from this day forth and forevermore, I want you to not only be my savior, but my king. Come take your rightful place in my life, in my heart.